heard readings from Matthew and Luke's gospel, and uh, Matthew and Luke, in their accounts of Jesus' life, give us the facts of Christmas. Uh, They give us Mary and Joseph and the angel Gabriel, the stable, the shepherds, the angels. Those are the facts of Christmas. What happened? But in his gospel, the apostle John gives us the meaning of Christmas. He tells us what what happened means. It's very easy for us to feel Christmas. All you have to do is sit back and wait for the nostalgia to hit. Uh, You remember Christmas's past, or you get an opportunity to see Christmas through the eyes of a child or, or a grandchild. But in his gospel, John doesn't want us simply to feel Christmas. John wants to help us think about Christmas, to think about what all of this may mean for us personally. Let's have a look at what he says in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. That life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh, and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is God's word. There's an awful lot that we could have a look at here. Don't worry, I've also got a turkey in the oven. I want us just to look at three things that John tells us about Jesus in these verses. And firstly, John tells us that Jesus is big. I'm sure you've had this experience. It's uh, 11 o'clock on Christmas Eve. You're wrapping the Christmas presents. You get to the final box, and you suddenly come to the awful realization that you are not going to fit this present inside this piece of paper. You could have a degree in origami and still not get this box in this piece of paper. And in a similar way, Jesus is a lot bigger than we think. He doesn't fit into a little box or parcel. John tells us three things about the bigness of Jesus in these verses. He tells us that Jesus is the Word of God. Our words are the very best expression of who we are. If you don't know me this morning, you might be able to infer a few things about me from the way I dress, uh, from a little bit from my behavior, uh, perhaps from my facial expression, but you won't really know what's going on inside of me my thoughts or my emotions, unless I speak to you and reveal myself to you through my words. 
to use a totally random example, if you wanted to know what I wanted for Christmas, uh, you might be able to make certain inferences by looking at my behavior. Uh, You might notice, for example, that I wear socks every day. You might notice that I shower every day. And based on your observances, you might come to certain conclusions about what I would like for Christmas. But if you really wanted to know what I want for Christmas, you could ask me. And I could speak to you and tell you. I could reveal my heart to you. And that way I could get coffee and books and chocolate instead of deodorant and underwear. (laughs) Our words reveal what's going on inside of us. The Bible says, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's why truly talking to someone and truly listening is one of the most intimate things that we can do. And Jesus, as the Word of God, reveals to us the very heart of God. The writer to the Hebrews says about Jesus, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. Jesus is the Word of God. He is God. Jesus is big also because he is the creator. John says, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In astronomy, Jesus is the one who made the stars in our Milky Way galaxy, some of which you can see here. We've never been outside of our galaxy, but as far as we can guess, our galaxy looks something like this. The next slide should show us what our galaxy vaguely looks like. You might say, well, I don't see me there. Um, We're not even the center of the galaxy. As far as we can figure out, we're somewhere around here. The next slide should show us roughly whereabouts we are. There we are. (laughs) Just coming back to our Milky Way galaxy for a moment. Uh, Just the next slide. If, If we were able to count the stars in our galaxy, if we were to start counting them at the rate of one per second, it would take us... 2,500 years to count all the stars in our galaxy. And our galaxy is just one of an estimated 100 billion galaxies in the universe. The next slide shows us just a little bit of our universe. Or in the human body, Jesus is the one who created the 75,000 miles of blood vessels in your body that take blood to 60 trillion cells. He's the one who keeps your heart beating 100,000 times a day. Or in nature, in the woodpecker, Jesus is the one who made the tiny sponge-like cushion between its head and its beak so when it drills a hole, it doesn't knock itself out. (laughs) That might not mean a lot to you, but it's a big deal to the woodpecker. The Apostle Paul says of Jesus, by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is bigger than we think. Because Jesus is big and because he's the creator, John tells us that Jesus is life. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The most depressing words you can read on Christmas Day morning are these. 
some assembly required, batteries not included. <laughs> you finally get to open that huge box under the Christmas tree. You discover it's what you've always wanted, and you find it doesn't have batteries. And the peace and the tranquility and the harmony of the rest of the day is spoiled as you battle to try and insert tab A into slot B. I wonder how many of us haven't ruined a perfectly good Christmas present by going ahead and trying to assemble it ourselves without reading the instructions. And when we do, we often hear the most horrible sound you can hear on Christmas Day, the sound snap. (laughs) I once spoke with a man recently who said that while he believed there was a God, he was a do-it-yourself kind of guy. And he felt that it would be fine to figure out his life without God. But if Jesus really is the author of life, if he has created all of this, then he is truly the only one who can explain and direct and help me in my life. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And so John tells us firstly that Jesus is big, the word of God, revealing God's heart to us, the creator, life. What is the meaning of Jesus being big? Well, if Jesus is as big as John tells us, then I should go to him because he might know a thing or two about my marriage or my finances or my teenagers. Jesus is big. Second thing that John tells us in this passage is that Jesus became small. The word became flesh. God is great, God is creator, God is light, God is life. All religions in the world share those ideas. Christianity alone declares that God became small. In one of his books, the author Max Lucado describes what this means in vivid terms. Uh, Let me read it to you. The omnipotent in one instant made himself breakable. He who had been spirit became pierceable. He who was larger than the universe became an embryo. And he who sustains the world with a word chose to be dependent upon the nourishment of a young girl. God was given eyebrows, elbows, two kidneys, and a spleen. He stretched against the walls and floated in the amniotic fluids of his mother. God is a fetus, holiness sleeping in a womb, the creator of life being created. The Word became flesh. You know, John could have put this differently. He could have said the Word became human or the Word took on a body. But he said the Word became flesh. And he specifically uses a word that the Bible always uses to describe human frailty and fragility. So, for example, in Isaiah, we read, all flesh is as grass. And all their glory is as the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. Flesh is like a little bit of grass that lasts for a day. So it's the word made soft. The word made vulnerable. The word made killable. Why does John emphasize the vulnerability of Jesus? Well, to point out something that the writer to the Hebrews explains... Since the children, that is, you and I, have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those 
who are being tempted. If you went to a performance of uh, Handel's Messiah sometime over this Christmas time, you would have heard the choir singing those magnificent words from the prophet Isaiah, written 700 years before Jesus was born. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Wonderful Counselor. If you are going through problems in your life and you need to speak to someone, you want to speak to someone who knows a little bit about what you are experiencing. And so if you're having troubles in your marriage, you want to speak to someone who is actually married. Or if you have problems with your teenagers, you want to go to someone who has got teenagers or has had teenagers or at least who has been a teenager. In Jesus, we have a wonderful counselor because he understands us. Have you been rejected this morning? So was he. Have you been betrayed? So was he. Have you been abused or experienced violence? So has he. Have you lost a child? So has God. Have you lost a best friend? So has he. Have you been misunderstood? So was he. Been falsely accused? So was he. Have you been insulted? So was he. Are you poor? So was he. Three years didn't have a place to call home. Are you lonely? So was he. Are you facing death? So did he. We can go to him and receive his help and strength and life and hope because he understands us. And maybe you're saying, well, I did go to him and it didn't work. I cried out to him and he didn't answer my prayer. I feel abandoned by God Jesus knows what that feels like too. Jesus knows the pain of unanswered prayer because in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Lord, if there's another way, take this cup from me. And that prayer wasn't answered. From the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So as the writer to the Hebrews says, in Jesus, we don't have a God who lives a million miles away and is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who's been tempted and tested in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. And thirdly, in these verses, John tells us that Jesus came near. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Again, there are lots of ways that John could have expressed that. He could have said that the Word took up residence in our world or the Word moved into our neighborhood or the word came near. But John literally says the word tabernacled among us. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle was a huge tent in which God's presence resided. Although God fills the universe, he promised to meet with his people in a special way in this tent. Uh, If you move into Pinelands and you build a huge house with a huge wall with spikes on the top and barbed wire and an electric fence, it says something about your desire to be with other people. (laughs) But if you set up a tent in my backyard, it probably means I'm going to be seeing quite a bit of you as you move in and use my bathroom and use uh, my kitchen. God pitched a tent in our human backyard so that we would have a lot of dealings with him. But there was a problem. 
You see, the high priest could only enter the most holy place of that tent once a year. Only once a year, and only with blood. Why? Because of the sin of the people. Here in John chapter 1, John describes Jesus as being light, but a few chapters later he says, Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and won't come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Our sinfulness is a barrier that prevents God coming near to us. But Jesus came so near that he overcame that barrier. Do you remember the moment that Jesus died on the cross? We read that the curtain in the temple, that one that separated the most holy place from the rest of the temple, it was a half a meter thick. It was torn from top to bottom as God flew, threw open the, the, the curtain and said, come, I've done everything possible through the death of my son to bring you to myself. We, read, we sang about it a little earlier in our first carol. God and sinners reconciled through the life, the death, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so John says of Jesus, we've seen his glory the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus tells us the truth about ourselves, that we do indeed prefer darkness because our deeds are evil. And there's a part of us here this morning that we wouldn't want anyone to know about. We sometimes even deny it to ourselves. But Jesus is also full of grace. He's not prepared to leave us in our sin and darkness and death, but he comes as near as possible to bring us out into his light. I heard a story about an American Navy SEAL, Special Forces, who uh, was, uh, they, they and their team had to go and free a group of hostages in some dark part of the world. And the team flew in by helicopter. Uh, they made their way into this compound. They stormed into the room where the hostages were curled up in a corner, terrified. The room was filthy and dark, the hostages were all, all huddled together. And the seals stood at the door and shouted out, we're American Navy seals, we're here to rescue us, come with us. And none of the hostages moved. They, they were too terrified. They didn't know what was going on. And the seals didn't know quite what to do. Time was running out. They couldn't carry all of the prisoners out one by one. And eventually one of the, the seals got an idea. He put down his machine gun. He took off his helmet he went and he huddled up as close as possible to these prisoners on the ground. He put his arms around them. He got as close as possible. He looked them into, in, in the face. And he said to them quietly, we're Americans. We're here to rescue you. Come with me. After a few moments, he got up. The hostages started to look at him. They, one at a time, got up. And they followed him out of the room. And they were rescued. And in the same way Jesus enters our darkness, he came near. He stretched out his hands on a Roman cross and paid the price for my sin, died my death to bring me back to God. Jesus has come near. What is the meaning of Jesus coming near? Once again, it's an invitation for us to draw near to him. God has gone to extraordinary lengths to be near to us. And now he invites us to be near to him. And John tells us how to do that in verse 12. Though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but it didn't receive him. Yet to all who received him, 
to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, when we truly see Jesus as John describes him, either we can decide that he's a fool or he's evil and we run from him, or else we throw everything at his feet and say, my Lord and my God, and we build our lives around him. But we can't go halfway. We can't just like Jesus if he is God and creator and life and light. It's all or nothing. Believing in Jesus isn't simply an intellectual assent to the truth, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. It's a surrendering of my entire life to him as God. And receiving Jesus means taking him into my life, my home, my school, my work, my marriage, my dreams for who he really is. And we could do that even this morning. We could start a relationship with Jesus by singing the words of our final carol and meaning them uh, in your heart. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to me, I pray. Cast out my sin and enter in. Be born in me today. You could take one of our tracts at the back there, your most important relationship, and use the words there to start a relationship with Jesus. It would be a start, a little bit like the vows at a wedding. The vows don't make a marriage. They initiate and formalize a marriage. Marriage is then created day by day over years. And a new life with Jesus could start for you today and then grow into the most beautiful friendship through a daily surrender of your life to Jesus, life, light, creator, God. I could assure you it would be the best Christmas for you ever if you experience this new birth for yourself. Let's bow together in prayer. Let the stable still astonish. Straw, dirt, floor, dull eyes, dusty flanks of donkeys, oxen, crumbling crooked walls, no bed to carry that pain. And then the child, rag-wrapped, laid to cry in a trough, Who would have chosen this? Who would have said, yes, let the God of heaven and earth be born in this place? Who but the same God who stands in the darker, fouler rooms of our hearts and says, yes, let the God of heaven and earth be born in this place? Father God, you've said yes to us this morning. Won't you give us the courage and the strength to say yes to you today and all days. Amen.